If you're a pop culture junkie who loves TV, film, music, comedy, and other really important stuff, then you've come to the right place. Get ready and settle in for Classic Conversations, the best pop culture interviews in the world. That's right, we circled the globe so you don't have to. If you're ready to be the king of the water cooler, then you're ready for Classic Conversations with your host, Jeff Dwoskin. All right, Phyllis, thank you so much for that amazing introduction. You get the show going each and every week, and this time was no exception. Welcome, everybody, to episode 147 of Classic Conversations. As always, I am your host, you guessed it, Jeff Jawaskin. Great to have you back for another classic episode full of conversation not just a clever name. I'm excited to keep the comedy train going this week with my special guest, Joe Starr. Joe Starr is an amazing comedian that I had the opportunity to work with in 2007 at Mark Ridley's Comedy Castle. I've stayed in touch with Joe over the years via Facebook, where he documents, basically he's a comedy historian. So on top of being super hilarious himself, Joe is full of a million comedy stories. He shares stories about Bob Hope, David Letterman, Jerry Lewis, Phyllis Diller, and so much more. This is an amazing episode. I'm really excited to share it with you. Got to catch up with an old friend. Got to be educated on the history of comedy. So much greatness coming up in just a few seconds. But before we get to that, just want to remind everyone, episode 146 with the legendary Robert Klein. Robert Klein joined me. So many great stories. If you love comedy, you owe it to yourself to check out episode 146 with Robert Klein. That conversation, this conversation with Joe Starr, I'll probably have to send you a certificate of comedy excellence achievement that you can print out and put on your wall. It'll be suitable for framing. It'll be amazing. Oh, look what I earned from listening to classic conversations with these amazing comedians. All your friends will be so jealous. Well, without further ado, here's my conversation with actor and comedian Joe Starr. Enjoy. All right, everyone. I'm excited to introduce you to my next guest, comedian, actor, writer, ladies and gentlemen. The legendary Joe Starr. Well, thank you. What a, what an introduction. That's that's awesome. I know. I like to bring everyone on in style. That's, you're, <laughs> you're a classy, classy man. Uh, Joe and I go back quite a bit. We worked a weekend together in 2007. How much time has gone by wow. is inconceivable to me. But I was Joe's feature at Mark Ridley's Comedy Castle. Yeah, the castle. In 2007, where you wowed the audiences. <laughs> I think they were wowed that there was a door center stage. That fascinates me about that club, that there's a door center stage that you walk right out onto the stage. That's great. Well, interesting thing that you think that's weird. That's the first club I ever played. 
Really? So I thought that was normal. Well, that's where I did my, my open mics. Oh. And when I came up, that was like the club that I would do every week. So when I started going to clubs that were like, no, no, you're like behind this thing and you got to <laughs> climb over that. And you got to go, well, there's no door. You just don't walk out on stage. And they're like, yeah, <laughs> like, what are you talking about? I'm like, there's no like nice little green room, right? They're like, I mean, you can sit on that box if you want to sit oh, on yeah. that box. Sure. But like, <laughs> it was like, that to me was normal. And then and when I started going everywhere else and realizing it wasn't normal, I was just like, well, what's going on? Welcome to show business, kid. <laughs> oh, it's man. like that joke of the three comics get into a car accident and they die on the way to a gig. So they end up up at the pearly gates. There's a long line of people waiting to get to St. Peter. And they walk right past the whole line. They walk right up to the front. And they go to walk right around St. Peter. He goes, where are you going? This is where the comics. And he goes, oh, go this way. You'll see the kitchen. Cut through there. You'll come out through a hallway. <laughs> <laughs> of course, we can't walk through a front door, right? <laughs> oh, man, that's funny. The one thing I remember about you is you had so many stories. The one that kind of just always stuck with me, I guess, is one where you talked about the lights going out. You still did the show. And then you had a propensity for getting standing ovations, <laughs> which you earned, which you deserved. But uh, It's a, a propensity. But, that was in um, – I remember where that was and why it was so important. That was in the Kansas City Improv. That I heard they've moved. I haven't been there in a long time, but I was at the Kansas City Improv, and it was Christmas time. It was about two or three weeks before Christmas, and the place was packed. The MC went up, and he did his time. Show's going great, and then the middle went up, and the MC went back up to bring me up. And he had a bit that ended with a very big punchline that he would do in between the feature and the closer, and he hit the punchline. And the lights went out. It was like perfect timing. And he thought we were messing with him. He thought we shut the lights off. So all the lights go out. Even the audience thought it was part of his act because it was so perfectly timed. That's funny. And then about a minute goes by and I wait staff is running by. You can barely see in the room. It's only lit now by the, uh, the tea light, those little candles on the tables. So it's a dim room. We're like, Oh, there's a blackout. We looked out on the. The parking lot was black and uh, it was jet black and somebody was trying to make phone calls and we found out that like half the city had blacked out. I don't know why. I don't know what Transformers went or whatever the problem was. The middle runs back on stage and starts telling jokes in the dark to the audience, just street jokes. Two guys walk into a bar just telling street jokes to kill some time while we got on top of the light problem. And the lights never came back on. In the back of the room, I see the waitresses just crestfallen. They're this was going to be a huge tip night because it was such a great night and it was packed and they're going to have to cancel the rest of the show. And my mom was a waitress when I was a kid and, and we were so close to Christmas. And I said, no, no, just I'm going on. And I ran backstage, ran out onto the stage. The, the MC's out there. He couldn't even see me. It was pitch black. And I said, introduce me. <laughs> who, who is that? It's me. So he, when they were yelling, there's no mic. Because the uh, electricity's off. And he just screams an introduction, and I went into my act. And I did about an hour and 15 into that room. That room was like a big 350, 400-seat room. It was gigantic. And the ceilings were really high. I remember that. It wasn't like a regular comedy club with a low ceiling. So I'm belting it out as hard as I can for about an hour and 15, hour and 20. And just as my voice was breaking, the lights came back on. And there was this weird moment where the audience realized 
They'd been listening to me in the dark for an hour and 20 minutes, had never seen me. The lights came on <laughs> and they realized now they could see me. And I was drenched. I was physically drenched in sweat from belting it out. It was, I was like I was singing opera for an hour and 20 minutes. And I, as soon as the lights came on, I kind of didn't collapse, but I sat down onto the stool on stage just from exhaustion. And I got at this beautiful, beautiful ovation from the people that was just wonderful. And then I figured, well, there'll be no second show. I mean, who would be coming during a blackout? So I said, I got to do, you know, five more minutes and we'll get out of here. And they're screaming, no, no. And I look at the manager and the manager's like, well, you know, we don't think there's going to be another show. So I did another like 40. I came to about two hours total. And then I ended and my, my voice was shot. It was, it was, it was almost totally gone. And the crowd's leaving. We walk out and there's 14 people lined up for the second show. They came anyway. They were already out to dinner and then came after the blackout. And uh, he said, you want to, these people really want to see you. <laughs> go, come on, man. I just did two hours, an hour and 20 with no mic, you know. And uh, I said, I'll make you a deal. If they want to sit at the bar, I will make all of them laugh. You know, I'm not going to get up on, on the stage again. If we do get up on the stage, I'm, I got like 20 minutes left. My voice is going to be shot. And uh, we did a second show. And the MC did five. The middle did 10. I was going to do 20. And I ended up doing almost an hour. I just felt bad. I couldn't let them not have a show. I did almost an hour. And then that, that applause from the second show, that meant more, a little more to me than even the first show. Even though the first show had seen me do that, the near impossible of filling that kind of space with sound for an hour and 20 with no mic. But that second audience, to me personally, that meant the most because that was like running a marathon as a comedian to do the two shows like that. But that's what that was. What a consummate professional you are. This is, so let me ask you something, Joe. How many years into your career at this point? Was that? Yeah. That story? Um, I started in the clubs early, early 90s, 1990, 91. And this we're talking about had to be 2005, to, right? 2000. Yeah, I would think 2005. So, so 10, 10, 15, 15 yeah, years. 15 years. Ish, ish. Yeah, 15 years. Yeah, 15 years-ish. Cool. Yeah. That's amazing. That was, uh, that was, that was a great show. That was a great show. But that's the one you're talking about, yeah. That is a great story. And it, it's cool that you did so long for the second. It's Once you probably started going, you just can't stop. It's like comedy's a little bit like a drug, right, in that sense? It's well, like, yeah. And I'm, I'm an old school, I'm a very old school guy in that there's certain things I, like, if you get on stage, if you're supposed to do 40 and you hit an hour and 20, you're a ham. You're just being a ham. You're a stage hog at that point. But if you only have to do 20, and you do like a 45, 50, almost an hour to give those people a show. That's not being a hand. I think that's being a professional, like you said. Like I would never, I've never turned my back physically on an audience ever. I just can't. No matter what the joke is, I will not turn around and turn my back to an audience. It's little things like that that I think uh, the, the old school guys, they're important to them, you know. So I'll tell you this story that parallels your story, but in no way is as triumphant as your story, but you'll appreciate it. And you may be the only person ever I met that would tell me, that tell, I would me. tell it to. Quick break. Want to thank everyone for their support of the sponsors. When you support the sponsors, you're supporting us here at Classic Conversations, and that's how we keep the lights on. And now back to my interview with Joe Starr. I interrupted myself, actually. I was about to tell you a really cool story. All right, let's get back to it. So it was, it was a two-man show. I'm supposed to do 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. And then the headliner does his show, right? So right. I'm going up. 
I go to do my set. And to let you know, to be perfectly honest, I'm halfway through my 20 minutes. I'm really thankful this is going to be over in 10 minutes because this isn't the greatest set I've ever had in my life. Okay. Yeah. I get this wave and a little note that says the headliner's not here yet. We need you to keep going. Mm -hmm. Keep going. I'm thinking to myself, oh my God, of all the nights, right? (laughs) Where you're not, you know, some that this this was early, so like I was, you're finding your voice. Sometimes you click, sometimes right. you're not as clicked into the audience. Right. Thirty minutes in, they're like, "He's not here yet." And I'm like, "Okay." <laughs> now keep in mind, I'm like, I am only being paid to do twenty minutes. I am only supposed to do twenty minutes. Frankly, I probably only was able to do <laughs> twenty minutes at this time. Okay. <laughs> But in my head, I think to myself, oh, and then at some point, they stopped even updating me. (laughs) They gave up. (laughs) And so in my head, though, I'm thinking to myself, you know what? These people don't know that that this is it. Mm -hmm. They think this is the show. If I were to leave right now, which I have every right to do, Mm -hmm. they're going to want their money back. I'm going to, the show is going to be ruined. And frankly, even if I'm not great, at least they'll be like, oh, I guess that was the show. You know what I mean? Like, at least in their heads, it would have been something. Right. So I think I did 50 minutes. When I say I did 50 minutes, I don't mean I did 50 minutes like you did two hours. I mean, somehow I pulled out my sheet of paper of everything I've ever written (laughs) ever and got through a bunch of stuff. Right. 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 I shouldn't say I did 50 minutes. I filled 50 minutes, which completely different. I got you. I got you. Okay. But I felt good about myself because I felt like I was doing a service. You know what I mean? I felt like this guy didn't show up. Sure. Turns out they actually never invited him. They forgot to tell him the show was going on. (laughs) So it wasn't like he was a no-show or anything. It was their kind of snafu. Wow. They gave me maybe an extra hundred, maybe. Like, I'm thinking to myself, I probably should have gotten more. I mean, I didn't, you know, it wasn't not for the quality, but for the fact that I just kind of saved them from probably ask, a lot of people asking for refunds. Yeah. Because you know? these people didn't know. It wasn't like they came here to see that guy or something like that. They right. just came and there was comedy. So anyway, wow. that's my low rent version of no, your story. <laughs> we all, well, I can back up further in my career with times when, I mean, almost everything that can happen during a show has happened, gone wrong when you're around long enough. But the, I think the oddest thing, I just talked about this recently to somebody was, this one club I did on Staten Island in New York, it was like in a, a strip mall. It was a small little club. And a guy, an older gentleman, backed his car right through the window of the club. He came into the club in his car. Now, I'd never even, <laughs> while it happened. He was I, really excited. He I hear really Joe Starr is going to be here. <laughs> he comes right through the wall, through the glass and the wall. And I was picking glass out of my hair. And I looked at the audience and I said, who ordered the pizza? Did anybody order a pizza? Because this guy's here. <laughs> <laughs> And I thought of the, um, do you know the Shecky Green story from Vegas when he crashed his car into the fountain in front of Caesar's Palace? No. In the 60s? No. So he was known for his gambling and his drinking, and he was driving his car in a strip, ends up crashing his car into the fountains that were in front of Caesar's Palace. The cops come flying down the street, siren, you know, lights are going. The cops walk over to his car that's in the middle of the fountain, and he rolled down the window and said, no wax. <laughs> <laughs> That's a line. That's a great line for a situation like that. But everything goes wrong over time, you know? People not showing up or, you know, when you open for someone. And have you ever run into a situation where um, the MC is just killer and the middle is just killer? And you go up and you're going, oh, I'm going to ride this wave. This is going to be perfect. And for some reason, the bottom drops out of the audience. 
because they're exhausted from 45 minutes already before you get up there. That happened to me the first, one of the first times I ever closed a room was the middle was great. The MC was great. The air conditioning went out in the middle of the feature. And there was such a great crowd. They were packed in this club. It worked up into such a friendly. By the time I hit the stage, 25 minutes later, 20 minutes later, the temperature of the room was probably 30 degrees hotter than it was before the middle went up. So they were drenched and they physically were afraid to pass out. <laughs> so I was performing. It was just a waste of time. They were not going to have any more fun. It was just miserable. It was miserable. Ice and drinks were melting before it got to the table. It was horrible. Was it also Friday by any chance? Yeah, it was, was Friday, it? second show. I didn't do the first show, only the second. Yeah. That on top of everything, right? Because they're all everyone's tired, and then when you add heat to it. That's right. I remember going to Vegas. This mm. isn't a comedy story. This is paying a lot of money to see a show story. <laughs> and it was, uh, it was oh, the one yeah. where the Cirque du Soleil with the water. Mm-hmm. So, you know, water, this chlorine, right? So we went, you think like, oh, the 1030 show, what a great idea when you're buying the tickets three months in advance, but you're tired because you're jet lag mm-hmm. and, and it's warm and the chlorine. The only thing I remember from that show is, you know, that state where you think you're awake, but you're like, you're like, your eyes are shutting and sure. you're, you're, you're nodding up and down and you, you think in your head, you're alert, but sure. you're really like in a half state of sleep. Yeah. And thinking to myself, I can't believe how much I paid for this. I gotta stay up. I gotta stay up. <laughs> Heat is the killer of any show. That is my point. I feel you. I you, feel you. You're right. The Bob Hope used to travel with a giant thermometer when he did theaters. And the theater had to be, I think it was 64 degrees. It had to be 64 degrees or he wouldn't take the stage because a cold audience is an awake audience. That's why the Ed Sullivan Theater is so cold, where they do the late show. The same exact reason. Ed Sullivan kept it at 64 degrees. I'm going to write that into my Into my your contract. writer? In your contracts? <laughs> <laughs> I need a sandwich in 64 degrees. <laughs> I always used to joke about that with the club owners. When you're a nobody, it's funny to joke about the, the headliner <laughs> level stuff. You know, it's like I'd look in there and the owner would be there and I'd be like, you're not filming this. I'm not going on. You know what I, mean? I mean, I knew the guy, right? But I mean, like, <laughs> yeah. There are some, okay, Jeff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> sure. There are guys that I. I mean, I've heard. We've all heard the stories through the years of odd things in the riders. And my my request when I was doing the road road a lot, you know, back when you know when I was working with you and I was doing the road a lot for a couple of years, and they would ask, "Do you want anything?" Like the agents would be, "You want me to put anything in the contract?" No, I just. Tell the club owner I want the the best feature he's got. That was all I wanted. Was I wanted the best feature, and then it was I want the best MC that they've got in that club. And I roll into a city, and you know when you're coming up, you start featuring every now and then. There'll be a couple of headliners that'll call you over on the first night. You know that bit you do about the hospital? Yeah, don't do that because I have a bit like that. You know that kind of talk. Right. That was always, that's a, you shouldn't be closing if that's an issue for you. But that's my personal opinion. When I started closing on the road road, I would call over the feature and say, do me a favor. And they were waiting for the, don't do this, don't do that. And I go, I, I got a small request for you. When you are done and get off the stage, I want them to think the show is over. I want you to absolutely annihilate this audience. Take every bit of energy out of them. Destroy. I do not want to be able to follow you. Like, really? Yeah. Pull out all the stops. Absolutely destroy. And then I tell the MC the same thing. Don't make it possible for this guy to follow you. I want the two of you to be done and for this audience to think we got to pay the check and go home now because it's done. Then I go to work. Because then it's challenging. Then it's, it makes the whole show better. If everybody's the best they can, it just elevates the whole show. 
instead of trying to hold back the feature or the MC and don't do this and don't do that. That's ridiculous. Absolutely. I tell you, it's funny that you say that about the material. Don't, you know, don't do certain material. Mm -hmm. I used to always avoid everyone before the first show, usually like whatever the Thursday show, Mm -hmm. because my thinking was if he didn't give me that speech or if the headliner didn't give me that speech, Mm -hmm. I had one shot to get out everything I wanted to get out for the weekend. Wow. You know what I mean? And then I could always change something based on hearing. It would be wrong for me. I always thought to, if you did like a hospital bed Mm -hmm. and then I did that after, like the next show, I added that to my set. I feel like that would have been wrong. Right. But if I feel like if I get out there and I do my bits and this bit and that bit, now you got to just follow it and you got to deal with it. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. And it it was more likely that the headliner would not say anything to me Mm -hmm. because I got the material out. You know what I mean? Everyone did their sets. That's smart. That's really smart. I like that. I, I got to say, like, well, I think one of the best shows I ever had, I was headlining a show. I should say I was closing a show. You're a headline. I was closing a show. Okay. And the guy before me blew the freaking roof off the thing and had a little bit different vibe than okay. me. Okay. You know what I mean? Like, I was going to come in much lower key. Sure. And I ended up changing my first five minutes to kind of just ride the wave better. Mm-hmm. And that became like my the way I opened every show moving forward from that point forward. Wow. Like that just became, it just became like the perfect way to just kind of go into yeah, it. Yeah, absolutely. And so, That's something the new guys, you know, really new people in the business, they, they learn the hard way. But it's something I've suggested a long time where I, let's say like a showcase night and there's nine people going up and some local hotshot walks in and they bump people a little bit to make room for them to do 15. The person who follows them is usually terrified if they're a newer comic. And I, I tell all of them, listen, all that guy has done, he got the crowd to 36,000 feet. That's where they are. Now, you keep thinking you got to land the plane and take off again. They're at 36,000 feet. Just sit at the controls and keep flying. You're already up there. The hard work is done. The audience is off the ground. And just take over from that momentum. And like you said, that first five, ten minutes, yeah, you you cruised and you brought it to your altitude. That's just... That's because you're a, a you know a consummate showman. You know what you're doing. You know, oh, just two consummate showmen having a podcast together right now. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a great name for a podcast, isn't it? Two consummate gentlemen. All right, we should do that. The, <laughs> I tell you, the funniest thing I ever saw, and though no, I, I didn't watch a lot of Full House, but there is an episode where Dave Coulet in the in the show is getting his big HBO shot in the show, yeah. and Phyllis Diller walks into the club, and they let her go on, and then they do one of those where they. <laughs> You know, the the time jump thing, and it's like an hour and a half later. Sure. Oh, that's great. <laughs> and then he goes up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, I I think if you were to follow someone huge, and you could hold your own, like mm-hmm. you said, just maintain that, mm-hmm. like that's what people, that could make you, right? It's like, oh my God, he went up after, what's his name? Absolutely. And he just blew, he just, he just continued the momentum. You know, it seems like that would be a really good thing. Letterman used to do that all the time at the comedy store when when Pryor would stop in. Letterman begged to follow him because he knew there, w- there was nobody bigger at the time and he was going to take every bit of energy out of that audience. And Dave wanted to start from that, you know, to really tr- test out his material. Some people, it, it's a good way to learn for most people. So what, what kind of led you to comedy, Joe? What kind of, how, did you, how did you start doing stand-up? And then, you know, how did you then parlay that to... To acting, and then we can dive into some examples. Um, well, when I was a kid, kid, it goes beyond me. My grandfather was in vaudeville. He was a dancer in the 1920s. He was in show business for a while, and then vaudeville kind of went to the wayside. He became a civil engineer, 
And the showbiz bug skipped my father. He didn't want to be in the business. But growing up, even as a kid, I was always studying comedy, not just laughing at comedy. Even when I was, my earliest memories are watching, you know, an, an old Chaplin movie or the Marx Brothers or Phyllis Diller or any, anybody picking apart, not intentionally, just understanding what they were doing comedically. And I always knew I'd be in show business. On some level, I wanted to be part of that kind of fun. And uh, when I was 15, my father took me to a comedy club for the first time because comedy clubs were everywhere in the 80s. I saw my first comedy show, a stand-up show. And I thought to myself, I can do this. I can do this. Graduated high school when I was 17. Two weeks later, I was in a club, you know, signing up for Mike Knights and that kind of thing. You know how it is to get in stand-up. It's like erosion. It's like you're getting by osmosis. You're just, you're just there. And you slowly, it's like becoming part of the Borg. You just slowly assimilate into the, you become <laughs> part of the big hive mentality. And then I was just in stand-up. But I, I always had a knack for stand-up. But acting, I knew, was something I, I was going to need to study. And after a couple of years of stand-up, quite a bit of stand-up, then I started uh, taking acting lessons. I was given a scholarship to study at the Joanna Bexson Studios in New York City. And she was uh, she was Ray Romano's first acting coach. Um, Colin Quinn studied with her. And I was fortunate enough to study with her for years. And we went on to be friends and, you know, very close friends and colleagues. We worked on a few other things together. And then the acting led to auditions and an agent. And then audition, 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 audition. That's It's a numbers game after that. Sorry to interrupt the interview with Joe Stark. I take a quick break. And we're back. Let's get back to the interview with Joe Starr. He just told us how to get to Carnegie Hall. Audition, audition, audition. I, I may have that. Anyway, all right, back to the interview. You know, talent is just enough to, to get you in the door. But man, it's a numbers game after that. How many auditions do you feel you go on for every role that you do land? Um, well, I, early on, I had a really high batting average. And I don't know if it's because I've always been an old soul and people were shocked that they didn't know who I was when they first met me. They figured I had been around a while and they didn't, they didn't know me. But at the beginning, I, I had a, an embarrassingly high batting average. The first commercial I ever went in for, I landed it. The first television pilot I ever read for, I almost landed the lead in it, in, if, in, a, in a series. First movie I ever went in an audition for was World Trade Center. I got a role in that. So my first things, were I was landing them one after another. And of course, as an idiot who's new to that field of the business, I went, why is everybody complaining that it's so hard to get work? I got four gigs in a row, you know? And Yeah, uh, you got to keep that to yourself, I imagine. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, after <laughs> it's that- It's like the waiter who's like, I'm getting all these tips. Yeah, I'm right. doing so well. It's like- <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. So that's what, you know, it was, I was doing stand-up 14 years, still had a day job. And worked in only in the tri-state area of New York, New York, Connecticut, New Jersey. I never traveled more than 150 miles from my house because there was that much stand-up back then. Right. And then I got the Montreal Comedy Festival, and that changed everything. That was in 2004. That changed everything. So when you say that changed everything, talk, talk me through that. Like what what happened? The festival, the Montreal Comedy Festival, is still the largest comedy festival in the world. It takes over Montreal for two weeks, the third and the second and third week of July every year. And the entire industry is there. The entire industry in film and television, now in streaming media. There are suits up there from the studios and the networks and producers and, and then writers and they have actors and short comedy film competitions. So there's a lot of people, thousands of people just in the industry that are there. So if you're lucky and you get a good break on a great show, because they have so many performances going on during those two weeks, 
you can become like the buzz of the festival. So all at once, within two weeks, the whole industry knows you at once. It's not that you had one meeting and it went well, and then they talked to somebody else. You had a second meeting. This is like having a 100 meetings at one time. I was up there 2,000. I performed 2001, 2, 3, 4, and 5. I performed the festival five years in a row, which was incre- is, still is incredibly rare for anybody other than Dom Herrera. Dom has done every single one of them. He's been there since the beginning. He's done every one. Did those five years, and the industry saw me, and that led to more auditions for television and then film and, and like that. Do you focus more on TV or film these days? Or you don't care as long as it's a... It's funny. As you get older, you get far less picky because the jobs get further apart. So, you know, you go in for anything you think you, quote unquote, fit the suit. They're looking for a blue collar, kind of middle-aged average guy. I'm right in there. If they're looking for a, you know, six foot six chiseled surfer, I'm not going to go in for that part. So, you know your type and you go in for everything. But the auditionings change as you get older, of course. You know, I remember they asked Bill Murray... Uh, right after Lost in Translation, which was a great movie, uh, they asked him, uh, to what do you attribute this, uh, sudden surge in the, you know, people looking out for a, for a Bill Murray? And I remember him saying, I'm not more talented than anybody else. I just hung on longer than they did. So now when they look for a Bill Murray type, I'm the only one left. <laughs> you know, he, he's it. <laughs> he's the only one who fits the bill. And he's right. As you look at older and older actors or people who've been around longer and longer, there's very few of them of the same type. The ones who are specific hung on. And it's still, there's only one Christopher Walken. There's only one Pacino. There's only one Meryl Streep. You got to hang in there. So what was it like on World Trade Center working with Oliver Stone? Did you get to work with Oliver Stone on this? Yeah, he was incredibly gracious to me. Incredibly gracious. I didn't know what to expect. He was taller than I thought he was. He's very tall. Uh, he's like 6'1", 6'2". Very tall man. And he was overly nice to me. It was my... I had no credits. When I went in for that audition, I had never done anything. My bio was basically my stand-up <laughs> bio. And uh, what interested him was, it's, oh, you said you're you're the grandson of a vaudevillian. Because, you know, you don't hear the word vaudeville anymore. And I said, yeah. And uh, my grandfather was a dancer. And, and this was only for two or three lines. It's the first two or three lines in the movie. Uh, an average guy on a subway. And the scene was with Jay Hernandez, who's now, you know, Magnum P.I. I auditioned for these three lines. And that was that. And I figured... I was going to get the thank you for coming in. We'll let you know. And instead, he shut the, he had what the, the big script, his big book, he shut it. And he said, do you uh, improvise? I said, sure, I can, sure. I, yeah. And he had me improvise with the, with the script reader for like 10 minutes. So I just started making, I was slipping jokes in there, just being funny. And he was laughing. He was having a great time for these three little lines at the beginning of a movie. The next morning, my agent calls and says, oh, wow, he loved you. He sent, uh, you know, his assistant sent this email over saying how much he enjoyed his time with me and he looks forward to working with me. It was really, he didn't have to do that. And then he had me into the city for rehearsals. Let's rehearse the scene. Three lines. What do we, uh, during that time, I'm sitting with him and Jay and we go through the three lines and then the two of them start talking and I figure, I guess I'm supposed to leave now. And Mr. Stone turned to me and said, what do you think? And we talked about this scene. It was really interesting how he wanted my opinion. It felt valued. And then we shot that subway scene, the opening uh, in Brooklyn somewhere, up on an elevated track. And it was so cold when we shot it. It was freezing that morning. Call time was like, I think 4.45 or 5 a.m. Because he wanted, the scene had to be shot while the sun was rising. So we got there really early. 
I had a trailer. He liked the Yankee shirt that I wore in the audition, so he told me to wear that. <laughs> so I show up wearing like a Yankee windbreaker thin thing with a t-shirt underneath, and that's it. And it's like 25 degrees. I was too stupid to bring a jacket. So then I'm called up. He's setting up the camera, and he saw me, and he's like, hey, Joe. And I went over, hey, Mr. Stone, how are you? He starts to give me this lesson in lighting. I couldn't believe it. I realized, why wow, he's giving me a crash course in, in lighting. So he's talking about he wanted the light. When the sun comes up, it's going to bounce off that building. And it's going to light this part of the, the tracks really well because the train's going to come this way. And he sees I'm kind of shivering a little bit. And he had on this big Parker jacket with a big fur line hood. And it went down to the floor. Like the whole crew had them. And there's a lot of extras there standing there waiting for us to get shooting. And he says, do you want uh, someone to get your jacket? I didn't want to look like an idiot. So I go, no, no, I'm fine. You're freezing your ass. Yeah, I don't get cold. No, I'm fine. <laughs> my lips are blue. You know, there's icicles on my on my eyebrows. I'm fine. And about three minutes later, he goes, Joe, do you want a coat? And and I go, I'm really, I'm just fine. And he call, you know, he pulls me in closer and he whispers, you're in a major motion picture directed by Oliver Stone. If you want a coat, they'll get you a coat. So I said, <laughs> I said, well, maybe I'd like a coat. And then he yells, Mr. Star would like a coat. And five minutes later, I'm in a big parker with a fur-lined hood, and the jacket went down to the floor. And he says, would you like some hot chocolate? I said, I would like some hot chocolate. Mr. Star would like some hot chocolate. Five minutes later, I'm holding a giant thermos of hot chocolate. And he was so overly gracious to me. And then uh, the sun was coming up. Now we're getting ready. You know, we're getting ready to shoot. And he says, come on, let's take the walk. I go, what walk? He said, the actor's walk. I said, okay. I didn't know what that was. So me and him walked maybe a hundred yards on this platform by ourselves away from everybody. And he said, so tell me about this, this character that you're playing. I said, guy on the train. It's just, and I keep thinking it's only three lines. And I said, the guy I'm playing, he says, of course. And I was curious. I said, why? What, you know, I'm, why does it matter what I think? You know, I said, why? And he said, the, the way you're, cho- you're going to choose to play it is determining how I'm going to come across him with the camera. I said, what do you mean? He goes, okay, do we open cold on you reading the newspaper over Jay's shoulder, standing up at the pole? Or is Jay sitting down and you're hovering over him like a hawk looking down? Or does the camera float through the crowd on the train and we find you? You're going to tell me how we find you. So I started to tell him the few ideas I had of the character, which you wouldn't think for three lines was important. And I told him the whole thing. We walk all the way back and He said, okay, now I know how I'm going to do it. I'm going to float the camera. I'm going to have somebody walk right in front of you, the two of you, and the camera's going to just settle on you, the two of you reading as if you're friends. And not until you say your lines do we realize you don't even know him. You're just reading his newspaper over his shoulder. So that really made, I thought about that for a long time after, like, wow, the the minutia that a director, you know, it's not just the angle of the camera and just the lighting and the sound. The actors creating these characters are a, a big part of it. He's very, very sweet to me over those three lines. It's amazing how much small minutia goes into everything you see. Like everything has a reason, at least probably, well, for someone like Oliver Stone, it probably does. Sure. Maybe maybe there's some people that just go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's four o'clock. All right, cut. That was great. <laughs> Did you get to hang with, was anyone else in your scene or like when you were done? Uh, no, it was, that was it. We were, we were done within about three hours just for that one shoot. Uh, Jay was very nice to me. But uh, that day of the audition, the week prior, uh, not the audition, of the rehearsal, the week earlier when I didn't know why I was there, as I was leaving, when we were all done, Mr. Stone walked me back toward the elevator. We're going in the same direction. And then my cell rang. I picked up my phone. I'm talking to someone waiting for the elevator. 
And then I hear Mr. Stone say my name. I turn around, and he was in the middle of introducing me to Nicolas Cage. In the middle of it. I went, oh, hi, hi, Nick. <laughs> and, and he's like, hi, are we in a scene together, man? And I was, no, we're not actually. I'm, I'm in the very beginning of, and Mr. Stone said, no, I just wanted you to meet him. That, that's all. It was, but it was very nice that I got to shake hands with Nick Cage. You know, that was really nice. That's cool. I always use handshaking as the definitive you met someone. Mm-hmm. Like, like if you walk by and someone just goes, hello. You know I mean? You didn't really meet that. Sure. If you, if you shake that, like Mickey Rooney, I was at the Townsend in Birmingham, Michigan. Townsend yeah. is like this fancy hotel where all the famous people stay, mm-hmm. like sports people, they all stay there. And so Mickey Rooney was there and I see Mickey Rooney. Wow. He was doing, he was the, uh, the wizard and the Wizard of Oz at the, in the play mm-hmm. he was doing in the play and so i walked up to him and i'm like mr rooney and i and i shook his hand and it was and he gives me a funny look and i'm thinking to myself you should be happy that someone my age knows exactly who you are without i didn't say this yeah yeah in yeah my head. and like with you know what i mean though like without without a hesitation i knew exactly you know what i mean yeah. a certain age my kids would have no idea right i mean like right. certain age yeah, at, so, at some point you know unfortunately sure some of the classic people they you wouldn't necessarily know who they were. That's how. So. I, that's one of the reasons why I really become kind of this unofficial historian in some ways of stand-up and show business in general on Long Island and in New York. Not just because I have such reverence for vaudeville, but we have to know whose shoulders we stand on. We have to. And there's people who... I've met some young or newer, newer comedians in the last five, six, seven years who really believe stand-up started with Sam Kinison started that there was no stand-up before Sam Kinison. I've met some new comics who are now 21, 22 years old. Never heard of Richard Pryor. Now, how sad is that? Yeah. Never heard of Richard Pryor. And then when I do talk to some of those guys and the guys who want to be real edgy, like Carlin or like Pryor, and I always say, you know, Pryor and Carlin didn't start out to be the people they ended up being. I say, you have to, what you should do is find out who inspired them and keep going back. Richard Pryor wanted to be Jerry Lewis in the worst way. That's what he wanted to be. He wanted to be Jerry Lewis. Carlin wanted to be Danny Kay. That's who he wanted to be as a young teenager when he knew he wanted to do something in show business and comedy. He wanted to be Danny Kay. Now, if there's new comics who've never even heard of Pryor, they sure haven't heard of Jerry Lewis and haven't heard of Danny Kay. And there's, you know, then who inspired Danny Kay and who inspired Jerry? And that, you know, I think there's a, there's a homework that is, it's part of the due diligence of being a full rounded entertainer. And we'll get to your Facebook in a minute. Cause I know, I know that's one of the things that sort of Facebook's great for keeping people in touch. But one of the things that really kept you top of mind, like even though it's been so long since we've actually mm-hmm. seen each other is, and I think I DM'd you once this thing, how much I enjoy all your long posts on things yeah. and, and retro introspectives on mm-hmm. things. Who do you think the, like the top people are? Who do you think the three people are? You don't have to pick three, but you know what? Okay. Who do you think the top people are that you think are being forgotten that need to be oh. remembered? Oh, Phyllis Diller. Only because Joan, what Joan Rivers had done, was, Joan was absolutely the step after Phyllis Diller. But Phyllis was kind of a, I got to word this right. Phyllis was kind of the fruition of something started prior to her, kind of by Martha Ray. There were, remember a woman doing stand-up let's say in the 50s, was incredibly rare. Incredibly rare. Women weren't even supposed to be in, at a bar by themselves back then, you know. So women doing stand-up like Rusty Warren or uh, Pearl Williams, they were doing risque musical kind of comedy acts at a piano, but they were underground. 
because they were the blue albums. They were, you know, but mainstream, Martha Ray, who, you know, I'm, I'm like in my head, I can't help but keep backing up, but I use Phyllis Diller as the break for a reason. Prior to her, you had people who were in vaudeville. Fanny Bryce, who was a woman in vaudeville. Gracie Allen. There were a few females, uh, women that were kind of, they came kind of famous in vaudeville, usually as a double act. Fanny Bryce was a single, but usually as a double act, usually as a husband and wife or a boy and girl act. Phyllis raised her children and came to show business later. She was in her 40s when she came to stand up. She didn't start as a teenager. So she was in her 40s. She was a middle-aged woman who's basically her first shot was at the Purple Onion in San Francisco. And it went so well. I think she was contracted for two weeks, I believe. She was held over for over a year. That's how popular it was to see this woman who was that funny. So Phyllis's career has to be studied by sociologists and not just by female comics, but any comic should be studying her career because of the what she did. She came late to the game and was a woman and she dressed the way she did simply to fight off any... The whole being a woman thing. She didn't want to have to deal with that on a business level, though she was a, a, a classically trained pianist and an incredibly smart woman. Along the lines of kind of as personally as like Lucille Ball, who Lucille became this businesswoman that was not to be crossed, not to be trifled with, because also she was not a kid. She got I Love Lucy. She was 41. So she was not a kid when she got that, you know? But I think Phyllis, uh, Phyllis's career should be studied very much. I would say also Jack Benny and George Burns, their friendship should be studied. <laughs> their, not just their careers, but their friendship, because it was such a rare thing in comedy. The Laurel and Hardy who loved each other, Burns and Benny loved each other. There weren't that many close, close friendships in the world of comedy. Friends with a singer or an actor, or is it? Yes, but two comedians being that close was a rare thing. And it still is incredibly rare that people get that close in the business with their best friends. But also, I, I wrote a post about Timmy Rogers. I'm surprised how many people don't know him until I realized why would they? Timmy Rogers uh, was called the Jackie Robinson of comedy because he was discovered by Jackie Gleason, who gave him his shot, his first shot on national television. The same he did for Pat Cooper. I talked to Pat about that years ago. I opened for Pat a bunch of times, and Pat's big break was because Gleason loved him and put him on his show. And Timmy Rogers, he was the first kind of well, he was the only black entertainer I know who didn't wear blackface in vaudeville, which is astounding. He was so funny and so talented, they let him get away with it, which is incredible. A lot of people, of course, don't know that black entertainers had to wear blackface when they performed in vaudeville, which was, I mean, it just, that's just astoundingly, it's beyond racist. That's just psychopathic. That's, you know. I didn't know that. Yeah. And that does not. That- yeah. And there were, <laughs> but there were comics like Pigmeat Markham. Pigmeat Markham had to work in blackface. His natural skin color was darker than the makeup. So he actually lightened up when he put on the blackface. It's just so stupid that he had to do it. But uh, yeah, Timmy Rogers, I think people have really forgotten about. We've lost uh, Rusty Warren just because I mentioned it before. She just passed away two years ago, maybe. Or not not many years ago. And her her album, Knockers Up, is just it's a tour de force of comedy for a woman of that era. It's just so brave. It's kind of what Mrs. Maisel... You know, taking bits and parts from Phyllis, from Joan, you know, Phyllis Diller, Joan Rivers, Rusty Warren, Pearl Williams, these women who were, you know, naughty. They were, you know, they were considered a dirty act. It was, it was subversive, you know, back then. But there's a whole lot of stand up and comedians that should be studied just for the endurance. I mean, not just for the material, you know, look at how, look at Jack Carter's career or Hackett or Buddy Hackett's career. 
or like I said, Martha Ray before, or what she did personally. Martha Ray is the only civilian buried in a military cemetery with honors from two separate branches of the military. There, there is nobody else, just her. That should be studied. I mean, people should know that. I think you should study every piece of comedy that was ever shot on black and white and every piece of comedy ever put on vinyl. Joe, have you ever thought about writing a book or something like that? Yeah, I've been approached a couple of times. Um, right now, I'm working on a one-man show, uh, which is taking shape uh, on writing a one-man show, not not actually doing it, uh, but putting together a, a framework. And it's it's difficult because there's so much I've fallen in love with. That's what COVID has done. The pandemic did for me was, remember when the, when the pandemic started, we thought it would be maybe a few weeks. Nobody knew. You know, we thought it maybe a month, maybe two months. And there was a book on the psychology of humor that I had always wanted to read. And I couldn't find it. It was out of print. So I went on eBay and I bought an eBay. Oh, this is what I'll read while we're in lockdown for eight weeks or whatever it is. That led to me buying more and more books. The last year and a half, I have through eBay at like $2, $3, $4, have found a great collection which has helped me put together the material for a one-man show on three different parts of my love of comedy, which is the psychology of comedy, the philosophy of humor and comedy, and old joke books, but really old joke books. I, my oldest ones are from 1860s. So really, really old joke books. It's three, like three different branches of the same subject. I don't know how I'm going to frame it together, but plus also the years I've been studying you know, I have a half a century of comedy in my head, you know, of, of watching That's what I'm it. saying. You have so much. I mean, like, I've been following you on Facebook for over a decade, right? I mean, like, yeah. so much. I do want to, I would do want to kind of dive into one sure. thing, sure. It, which is your mentor and friend, Jerry Lewis. Yeah. I know you have a huge love of Jerry Lewis. Yes, I do. And I'd love you to talk about that for a few minutes. Sure. Well, I'll start with this because I know that anybody who's listening, not anybody, but generally the feeling is when you mention his name, everybody brings up the fact that a comment that he said about women, he didn't think women should be performing comedy and he sees them as baby making machines and stuff. And I knew Jerry on two different levels. Now I only knew Jerry for the last five years of his life. I knew him from, it was 85 till he, till he passed away in, when he was 91. So six years. And I knew him in two different ways. There was to me, when I met him, there was always one or the other. It was either Jerry Lewis, the guy I saw when I was a kid, and then there was Jerry Lewis, the businessman, who was a total, complete, 180-degree difference than the guy who was the, the clown and the, the comedian. Corey Kahaney, who's a great comedian, somebody I respect very much. We were working in a casino once together. and It was right after Jerry. Uh, it was right before Jerry passed away. And she said, I, I know you love him. I know you love him. But do you like him? It was a great way to put the question. And honestly, I loved him. I loved his work. I love what he did, his humanitarian work for MDA, the Muscul Muscular Dystrophy Association, as national chairman. You could not be admi admire him for that. But as a comedian, as, as a man, he could be mean. I've saw him be mean plenty of times. But he was also an old man. I've seen plenty of old people be mean. <laughs> you know, it kind of comes <laughs> with the age. I think once you're past 85, you get to say and do whatever you want. You know, that's my <laughs> personal uh, opinion. He really gave me a great advice if I asked the right question. That's why he was a mentor to me. He didn't have time for, oh, what was it like? Why did you and Dean break up? You know, he didn't have time for those kind of silly questions. But when I asked him specific questions, like in a movie Hardly Working, I thought he took the hardest hit physically he ever took. And he was shocked that I noticed it. When I pointed out, he goes, nobody brings that up. And I said, but 
how did you not end up in the hospital? He goes, I did. Because he, he cracked his skull open on, on a f- uh, fall onto the floor, but didn't stop the scene. He kept going through the scene with, it, with his head bu- busted open. He was very kind and generous to me because he knew I had a love of the business and I had a great uh, foundation of the history of the business. I found that as old, the older entertainer, I was really close with Alan King. Alan had no patience for anybody who was not in show business 35 years. You, you had to be in the business a long time for him to even look at you. And the only reason we became friends was he was shocked I knew as much about the history as I did when I was young. You know, I was really young. I came into the business with a knowledge of it. But Jerry was always pushing me. Jerry was one of the first people to say I should write a book. He, he really did. He said, you, you can't be one of the last ones. There's more out there and they're not going to be exposed to it. His point was like when, when you and I were young, you know, there were five channels, six channels, seven channels. There were so few channels on television. You know, now at the internet, there's literally millions of channels, basically. So there's no focus of in, of material. So if I don't write on Facebook about Timmy Rogers, who's going to hear about Timmy Rogers? You know, if I don't write about, you know, Martha Ray, who's going to talk about Martha Ray? There are others, but we're like islands now. We're so far apart and desolate from each other. So that's why I might write a, a book. Well, you should definitely write a book. I mean, you have probably so many, many essays if you just even went through yeah. your Facebook. And oh, no, I know up. that. Yeah, I do. Yeah, you know, so that. you probably have. <laughs> yeah, I probably have written a book. <laughs> yeah, you probably have a book. You just aren't, you're just not making any money. What, how did you meet Jerry Lewis? I met him through Max Alexander, the great comedian Max Alexander, my other, my other brother, who uh, we've, we've lost, unfortunately. Max and Jerry were almost like a father-son kind of a thing, closer than a mentor-student thing. Max grew up idolizing Jerry, and and he had met him and uh, years before. And Max knew what a fan I was of, of Jerry's work and stuff. And then one day, Max uh, sent me a text, and it said, Friars Club tomorrow, 1130, JL, question mark. Like, do you want to go? Yeah. <laughs> so hmm. I was outside the Friars Club at like quarter to nine in the morning. I was there two hours early. I was not going to miss this chance. And that's how I met him. I met him when he was in New York at the Friars Club to celebrate his 85th birthday. That was the wow. day I met him. Joe, you are full of so many amazing stories. I can't thank you enough for sharing so many of them. Thanks, Jeff. Well, thank me. you. It's nice to talk to somebody who... Uh, knows the weight of the stories and the importance of them, you know? Thank you. Joe, how can how can people keep up with you on the social medias? Is Facebook the best place? I guess right now on Facebook, I'm going to have a website soon. But um, yeah, The Real Joe Star is uh, my name on uh, Facebook. I'm pretty easy to find. And uh, it's a picture of me in the center and then Jerry Lewis over my shoulder. So <laughs> easy to find. But that that is the best way. It's Jerry Lewis over your shoulder and then they camera pans in and you realize Jerry Lewis doesn't actually know you. He's just reading your newspaper. <laughs> and Jeff Dwoskin brings it full circle, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> That's a man who knows how to have a podcast. <laughs> Thank you very much, Joe. All right, everyone. The amazing Joe Starr. A man of many talents. It was great catching up with Joe. Check out his comedy when he comes to your town. All right. Well, with the interview over... It can only mean one thing. That's right. It's time for another trending hashtag from the family of hashtags at hashtag roundup. Follow us on Twitter at hashtag roundup. Download the free, always free hashtag roundup app at the iTunes app store or Google Play store. Tweet along with us and one day one of your tweets may show up on a future episode of Classic Conversations. Fame and fortune await you. 
The hashtag for this episode is hashtag best advice from a movie. Joe talked all about being an actor and learning the craft of acting. He talked about having a mentor and getting advice from Jerry Lewis. Advice, movies, put those together. Hashtag best advice from a movie. Yes, it has nothing to do with the specific movies Joe was in or Jerry Lewis, but I had to, I had to work with what I had. So we got a great hashtag, hashtag best advice from a movie. Basically, what advice have you gotten that you can live your day by from your favorite movie? This is brought to us by Acidic Cherry Tags from Acidic Blonde on hashtag roundup. All right, here's some awesome hashtag best advice from a movie tweets. Never say who's there. It's me, Sydney. What's your favorite movie? Sorry. (laughs) Uh, Get it? That's some great advice. Never say who's there. All right, you're getting the feel for the hashtag, right? Here's some more great advice from a movie. There's no crying in baseball. Life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you could miss it. Girls only want boyfriends who have great skills. I personally have nunchuck skills. Ah, One word, plastics. You get it? Hashtag best advice from a movie. You got one. Head to Twitter right now. Tweet it at us, at Jeff DeWaskin Show. I'll show you some Twitter love. Never go against the family. Be excellent to each other. That was an air guitar. Sorry, it was a little out of tune. Get a bigger boat. Do or do not. There is no try. I could do it. I can do that better. Do do. No, I guess I can't. Do or do. do. What am I, what am I trying to do? Do or do Do or do not. I can't. All right. Leave the gun. Take the cannoli. Never go in against a Sicilian when death is on the line. Never rub another man's rhubarb. See, these are awesome. Best advice from a movie tweets. Get busy living or get busy dying. Never put baby in the corner. Being yourself is overrated. Tell me about it, stud. Have what she's having. Yes, yes, yes. All right. You're welcome. Here's some great advice from a movie. The sun will come out tomorrow. You can bet your bottom dollar on that in our final hashtag best advice from a movie. If someone asks you if you're a god, you say yes. Whoa. All right. Do not cross the streams. Ooh, cross the streams. We are weekly live show at 930 on Wednesdays. Follow our YouTube channel. Quick plug. All right. All right, those are some awesome hashtag best advice from a movie tweets. Head over to Twitter. All those folks are retweeted. Show them some Twitter love. Tweet your own. You know the drill. All right, well, that's the end of the hashtag. The interview's over. That can only mean one thing. Episode 147 has come to a close. I can't believe it. I want to thank my amazing guest, Joe Starr. And of course, I want to thank all of you for coming back week after week. It means the world to me, and I'll see you next time. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Classic Conversations. If you like what you heard, don't be shy and give us a follow on your favorite podcast app. Also, why not go ahead and tell all your friends about the show? You strike us as the kind of person that people listen to. Thanks in advance for spreading the word, and we'll catch you next time on Classic Conversations. Classic Conversations.